It's my great pleasure today to introduce today's speaker, uh, Judy Fleischman. Her Dharma name is Secho Hoju, Essence, Harmony, Dharma Jewel. Before uh, talking about her experience in Zen, I wanted to introduce her to new people as uh, <laughs> someone who received an undergraduate degree and master's degree in physics from MIT and an astronomy degree from Columbia University. She likes to think of herself as a former rocket scientist. <laughs> and she gave that all up and she began to practice uh, Zen, first in Portland, Oregon, and continued for a decade in Manhattan in New York City at Village Zendo where she received priest ordination from Enkyo O'Hara in 2005. And she then served as Shusou at, at the Village Zendo also in 2011. Judy arrived at BZC in, two, in 2013 and after relocating to the Bay Area, Judy has held various practice positions at BZC, including co-Saturday director and online programs manager, along with co-facilitating GZO ceremonies and our annual MLK program. Judy also is a practice leader with Everyday Zen, whose guiding teacher is Norman Fisher. She serves on the board of the nonprofit organization Mindful Peace Building. After working in various healthcare settings as a board certified chaplain, Judy co developed telechaplaincy programs and specialized in palliative care. She currently serves as mindfulness educator and stealth chaplain at a private high school in San Francisco. So the many faceted and fascinating Judy. An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect Dharma is where we met with even in a hundred thousand million countless having it to see and listen to to remember and accept I love to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, here in the Zendo and everywhere we gather, uh, those joining online. How about those cherry blossoms? Just amazing. And the birds. It's really good um, to remember to notice those things. Those um, connections. Uh, and for me right now, particularly, because it's been a really hard week. And I'm going to tell you more about it in a minute. But what it comes down to is what's so hard about it
is a combination of moving through raw grief and really facing this question of how do I act from a place of compassion that isn't just about me? How do we practice with that? And as I say that, it can sound so contradictory because right, we learn that the definition of compassion is that it's actually about connection, usually with someone in pain and hopefully always including our own experience. And what I have come to realize is that the actual disconnect comes down to something more specific. How do I, how do you, how do we respond to a situation that, I'll keep it on the eye for the moment, to a situation that I view as harmful and watch it go down and not react, but instead respond. As we say, an appropriate response that takes in the whole situation. And that can be agonizingly hard, depending on what's going on. It's so hard that there's actually a term for this. It's called moral distress. Have you heard of it? Anyone heard of it? Yeah. Well, what that comes down to, moral distress, is when um, my sense of what's ethically appropriate is somehow not aligned with my sense of agency, my ability to act. This term became quite popular during the pandemic because so many people in healthcare were facing this for a whole variety of reasons, but the, the phenomenon of moral distress goes way back and to before there was a term for it. When those two line up, it's said that we can act with moral agency, but how do we know? How do we know for sure? 
And that is exactly what I had to face head on this week. So I've been working since last August at a um, private uh, so-called independent high school in uh, San Francisco. About 400 students, about 100 combination of staff, faculty, contract workers take care of the buildings and grounds, food services. I like to think of it um, kind of riffing off uh, the way Thich Nhat Hanh, one village tradition they call the fourfold sangha. I like to think of the school as the fourfold sangha. And I probably don't have to tell you, but to share from now my own personal experience of these months, it's really hard in schools right now. To have to be with some of the harsh realities that we're living with now, particularly things like uh, needing to train for the possibility of shooting. A bomb threat. All kinds of things. How do you normalize that? In a way that you can move through it um, part of the school's uh, mission statement says to offer a mindful approach to learning in life and I was hired as uh, the first such role at that school the earlier role that uh, was shape-shifted with the gap of going away, coming back, uh, revisioned uh, 10 years later because of the pandemic and the role as that mindful educator, mindfulness educator, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And also to provide, as they put it, uh, pastoral care for the staff and faculty. Right off the bat, one can ask, and how does one not provide that for all of the fourfold sangha with the fourfold sangha? So already we're dealing with um, how to be with um, frameworks and systems and not knowing and what is this practice and how to um, practice it in that fourfold sangha at such a time. On Monday morning, uh, actually on, yeah, I think it was early Monday morning, I, I to remember, 
I got an email and then um, sent all the staff and faculty and then uh, at the school assembly um, the principal announced that a student had unexpectedly died over the weekend. And um, two days later, with the family's permission, the next assembly on Wednesday morning shared the heart-wrenching piece that this student died by suicide. And I just noticed that I can keenly hear the birds singing. What do you do when you don't have the power to change the thing? So I want you to stop for a moment and just bring to mind the image of Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin Kanzeon, alternately male-bodied, female-bodied, In our age, we could say the pronoun is they. This one who hears the cries of the world and responds. What are they hearing? How do they hear? At that second assembly, I was in the room, but I was under the understanding that after the principal shared the news and how he brought his heart to it, that I would be um, inviting everyone into a moment of mindfulness, which is a form. It's how that assembly rolls. But that didn't happen because there was a change in plan and in that moment I wasn't aware of it. So I watched as he shared that and then Two school counselors shared some things about suicide prevention. And then it was followed by a little musical um, video of ocean waves, just some music, several minutes on big screens, hundreds assembled. And then silence for, I don't know, about three minutes. Now the thing is, is um, talked about it here a bunch. There's something called trauma-sensitive mindfulness, 
And what's really important about that is that um, there are times when just sitting silently can actually activate a trauma response, particularly, most commonly, to go into a freeze. And I know this from personal experience. So what happens is you think you're sitting quietly. You think, but actually you're checking out, you're dissociating. And that's harmful, especially prolonged, especially in that kind of a moment that's shared. And who can say for sure, but in that moment, when I didn't know what was going on, it was viscerally, searingly painful to sit there and to be very aware that I had a plan for what I was going to offer to help with how this piece landed. So many people in the room. And also to bring in a um, particular kind of connection um, language that, like here, creates a container to hold that kind of traumatic, complicated, sudden grief. And I couldn't do it. Now when I say I couldn't do it, I mean I could have disrupted. And I want to ask you to consider right now if you've ever had a moment like that, that kind of a choice. Do I go with? Do I disrupt? Do I leave? What do I do? It's really hard. Combined with grief. So I want to come back to what does Avalokiteshvara hear? What was I hearing in that moment? I was hearing outrage. I was hearing disbelief. And most of all, this searing, heart-wrenching pain. That was my human hearing. But I couldn't hear Avalokiteshvara as Avalokiteshvara in that moment until, because of practice, Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, when practicing, Deep prajna, paramita, clearly. I came back to the body, what was going on in the body. And by turning towards that pain, as we say, with this really hard pain to turn towards, the stakes feel really high. But I had no choice. Practice. It's like that, right? There's no escape. And when I came back to my body, what happened was really surprising. 
I felt the Sangha body. And I had a moment of not knowing, not being so sure. And what came through the body as wisdom was something interesting. I put a hand on my heart and I put a hand on my belly. You can try that now if you want to. What it does is it um, activates the parasympathetic nervous system. And uh, when you have big feelings, when you have um, very rapid looping thought patterns, carrying you away, you can do this. And I just did that, and it took care of that pain. And I could feel that holding in the room. And I held my seat while expressing perhaps something healing. I was in the front of the room, so people know the role. Maybe some saw. Maybe it helped. Who knows? But holding the seat in that moment was the appropriate response. And the reason I trusted is it came through the body. It's not counterintuitive to what I thought and wanted and felt this incredible urgency to do. And what that allowed was that throughout the day, as the impact was real for many, the freeze, as I checked in with teachers and others throughout the day and what they had to deal with in the classroom right after that meeting and throughout the day, how to um, meet that kind of silence. It's not peaceful. And speak to it, engage it, move it. And they did and we did. And by the afternoon, a lot of things were in the works, but in the afternoon, that's um, students, particularly his, his grades, class, 100 or so students, together with a bunch of staff, faculty, other staff. Um, we walked out to a beach nearby. We had a ritual offering flowers or shells to the water, saying what needed to be said. Kind of like when we make offerings here during a memorial service. And then we sat, actually, a long time on the beach. And the quality of that sitting was very different. Now remember, this is a school that does practice mindfulness, whatever that is. I mean, there's a lot to what is mindfulness in the comments these days. 
that I could feel it again, the Sangha body and now the Sangha body together with the waves, the light, sounds, creatures. In some ways it's very mysterious and yet really, really direct and immediate. And this is our practice. I don't know how many uh, of us are aware, but in our Sangha, I think about two years ago, one of our beloved elders Bodhisattva also died by suicide. The thing is very close. And so is Avalokiteshvara. There's a some teaching that um, the energy of that kind of um, wisdom, compassion, heart of understanding um, is present just in the moment of invoking ah. Think about that syllable, right? Ah, right. It opens your heart if you really. And a lot of times when we're chanting, if I'm hunched, ah, ah. And sometimes it takes. A lot of times it takes hearing the kokio, hearing all our voices. A lot of times our voice is struggling. Ah, and somehow it comes out. Ah, we are always doing this together. So to come back to, if you will, this moral dilemma that I um, was facing, it's, it's with us in so many realms. How do I act from a place of compassion that isn't just about me, my ideas, my strong feelings? I have a lot of compassion for the Saturday directors, past, present, and future. Um, and when I was uh, one of those, Actually, co-saturday director with Dean. Um, it was my turn up at bat, if you will. And, uh, you know, there's a lot going on this Saturday morning. And there were a whole bunch of people in their various roles. And I just felt like I was fielding one thing after another. And uh, it seemed like some of them were just highly anxious. And, you know, that's catchy. It's very contagious, right? Um, that's like that. So I went to Sojin Roshi's office up at Courtyard and Hosan's office. Uh, and I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to take care of all these people. They all have different needs. I don't know how to take care of them all. And he just <laughs> smiled. He said, don't take care of the people, take care of the situation. The wholeness of the situation. And of course, a different person, a different day, he might have said, 
listen, take care of the people, forget about the situation. Right. So it's a medicine for the moment. But that moment, that also has come back to me this week. What is the wholeness of the situation? How do we harmonize with that? Because, you know, as humans, we can only see as far as our eye of practice. And so how can we actually see a whole situation? Uh, that image of Avalokiteshvara often is with the thousand arms, right? And in each one, there's a hand. Each arm is a hand, and in the center of each hand, there's an eye. What is that eye? And uh, some say that's the prajna eye, the wisdom eye, the eye that sees through uh, duality, sees the interconnectedness, uh, sees emptiness, sometimes translated as boundlessness. What is that? I, I um, I like intimacy. Sees through being intimate, close. And in that moment at the school, my challenge was to be genuinely intimate with pain as a gateway to relationship, being in relationship, and remembering through connection in community, harmonizing what actually is the most important thing in this moment. Everyone in this room sees a little differently, responds a little differently. So through practice, we keep attuning. We need all Sangha eyes, and we need to practice so that, that those eyes are seeing clearly enough. It also connects to the Eightfold Path, right view. And responding appropriately. You know, the Diamond Sutra talks about five eyes. And there isn't time to go into all of it, but one thing about those five eyes, I'll just name them. There's the physical eye, the eye that sees through conditioning, the eye of karma. The second is the heavenly eye, which sees the world conceptually, which is important. 
from science to economics, all kinds of things. It's important to have those concepts. It's also important to recognize what kind of eye that is. The third is prajna eye, which I was mentioning, which sees non-separation, that intimacy. And the fourth, which I think is particularly important in, in this conversation, is the dharma eye which through really touching that intimacy, that seeing through, then can engage compassion and skillful means, all those hands responding, to relieve suffering. And what is the fundamental suffering? For you? Right now? That Dharma is the eye of the Bodhisattva. And maybe that crow is telling us something about that. I don't know. And the fifth is the Buddha eye. So called non dual awareness, which interestingly contains the other four. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says that the coming Buddha, Maitreya Buddha, said, I say, says, just like all our ancestors are speaking right now. Thich Nhat Hanh says that. Future Buddha is the Sangha. So we need all those eyes and hands to see, to act. And Dogen reveals that this eye is the eye of practice, right? Because practice and awakening are not two. And here, at BCC, we're coming into the home stretch for um, our first go at the Many Communities One Sangha practice. A program of quite some number of months. And this coming uh, Monday morning at 8 a.m., we're going to have an opportunity to hear from those who have participated in that program um, reflections, learnings, surprises. Why are we doing that? Because the eyes and hands are important. Having participated in that program, my, my experience um, was that that practice, which is continuing, um, is to see through, for me, privilege to hear the cries of racism and other exclusionary isms. Particularly ones that I'm blind to 
without the interaction, without the process, without the, uh, and have to keep turning towards pain, which often, um, in my case, could be a freeze and having ways to work with that. to see something that's very hard to really take in and turn it together, which is remarkably healing and ripples out. It helped me in the school. That program helped me to um, really have a new understanding of what coming from wholeness and harmonizing really means, which is, you know, how do you harmonize with dissonance? How do you include everything? Um, our sanghas are messy, have you noticed? This sangha, our families, um, the various communities, workplaces, and Art, driving in traffic, which I do a lot of these days uh, during rush hour. You stop and go. Often, um, it's often the same time that we're sitting here. Uh, even though we're sitting, I um, experience it as slow kin hit, and it really helps. Um, because things take time and they take process in Sangha. And what can really be challenging, at least has been for me in Sangha life, is when I have a tremendous sense of urgency and righteousness about what needs to happen, and by golly, it needs to happen now, it's already too late. It's hard to remember that that's just one hand and eye. It reflects the whole universe, right? expresses the whole universe, and yet So what happens? When you lose touch, when I lose touch with such process and structures, wherever we are, or become impatient with those, with the people more immediately who develop them, whether they're here now or you know, been gone for a while. So I want to invite us into um, just a, a minute of being with this um, in the body, and then we'll have a little bit of time for some dialogue. So I just want to invite you to um, you know, come back to your zazen posture if you're not there. And if you can, 
bring to mind a situation where you felt challenged by its apparent urgency. It could be recent, could be this week, could be today. It could be as immediate also as wanting to move in your seat, doing zazen, maybe a sense of discomfort or pain. It could be something or someone you encountered recently. Maybe uh, what appeared as an urgent request, urgent need. Or maybe something happening in the world. Whatever that is. See what it's like just to breathe that in. Just breathing in that sense of urgency. And then breathing out. What happens as you breathe out? Again, breathing in that sense of urgency. And noticing what happens as you breathe out. Now on your next in-breath, just bring to mind everyone assembled here today, breathing in. assembly of Buddhas, of Bodhisattvas. Breathing, seeing through, intimate, responding. You're ready. If you want to, put your hands in gusha. And we bow. This is our practice. And we have a little bit of time, not a lot of time, for some questions. Thank you, Judy. Um, I, I think I can speak loudly enough, if that's okay. Do you, is that okay? okay. Um, in listening to you, when you first started speaking, I thought, oh yeah. 
how do we manage this? How do we, do we hold these things? And um, what I realized partway through, there's the, the, the grief or the challenge of that. How, how do we, we hold that? But as you continue to speak, I started thinking about when you started, when you talked about that you're at this assembly and you had something planned to say and you wanted to say it and you knew, I guess, that there was something important and it felt important to share that with people and it made me started, start thinking about a situation last year. I'd gone through a couple of losses and a friend of ours um, was uh, in hospice and I wasn't really involved in the, even though I was one of the caregivers, there were these plans being made and I kept on wanting to, but I've got information. I just went through this. And it sounded similar to what you were talking about, but what came to me was my ego, that that was part of the struggle, is that I felt like I had something to share and it felt like in what you were talking about when you said, you know, we have something. And I think about recently, a couple of times, I've thought, I've got something to share. I've got something that would be helpful. And it wasn't encouraged. And I, I'm, I didn't hear you say the word ego, although I think that may have been in there, but being so left-brained. I was really struggling to find that. And I know I sit down and I read books. I read and we're talking about the ego and that's what pulls me back from what about me? I've got something to say and it really pulls me back into, oh yeah, it's not all, you know, I just read the, the thing in Zen Mind Beginner's Mind about the waterfall and the drops and Oh, I'm a drop. I'm an ego. So I think if you don't mind, if you could talk about that a little more about where your ego came into it and how did you come to terms and find that freedom from the ego in that situation? Well, it, it, it's, it's seeing through the ego and also recognizing that um, what we call ego can also be turned and express itself as uh, the, the, the wisdom of what's called for in the moment when it recognizes itself as the whole. Not just part of the whole, but the whole. So when I came, when I had that sense of urgency, maybe I had a taste of it when we were in just practicing that. Um, I think the mic went off. Okay. Uh, we have another mic, right? Now try. Okay. Great. I had to reset. I turned the power. Turn it back on. And it goes off. It comes on. Um, not so different are um, devices, you know. From, from ego. I, and I think this is a really important um, point that you're bringing up, Dean, because 
when I said that I, I needed to come back to what was happening in the body, and it was only then really turning towards the pain of, if you will, um, the ego's sense of what is right, together with, not alone, not isolated from, genuine grief, and also a genuine sense, discernment of something that could be offered, but it's not the appropriate thing to do in this moment. And I think that that's the challenge of these kinds of situations. It's um, um, it's not an either or. It's a both and. So it's 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 relating to and through this thing called ego and recognizing that what I was experiencing is my body suddenly put me in contact with all the bodies in the room. I mean, I felt like when we were just doing that exercise of breathing in and bringing to mind that we're all breathing in together. Um, some people call that, uh, you know, as a device, a broadening awareness practice. You, know, you become aware of your body, quote unquote, and then the cushion, and then out and out and out. But really what that is, is it's recognizing that ego's essential essence is Avalokiteshvara, with all those hands and eyes. So how do we befriend the ego? And I think the most immediate way we do that is through our body practice. It comes through the body, you know, like that old koan. Um, it's like reaching, how does the bodhisattva of uh, compassion, what did you do with all those hands and eyes? And, and um, the response is, well, it's like reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. It's just that immediate. So how do we breathe in that ego and breathe out intimacy? A follow-up. I kind of got lost during that. So I think what, what I'm interpreting you're saying is we have that ego. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, 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 I appreciate your response, but I, I, am, I, I mean, I've got a feeling we're probably talking about the same thing, but um, I, what happens to me is I recognize my ego is bigger at that moment. And what happens with me is realizing that my ego is that then I'm I think I know what needs to happen because that's what my ego is. Look, look at me, I've got this. And rolling that back when I am able to often read something that reminds me that's what's happened, then I fall back and that whole thing about realizing that I, I'm one with everybody, that's when that moment comes. And I'm not, I, not sure if that's what you just expressed, but maybe. I think um, 
my experience of the, 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 the kind of situation that I, that I was talking about, and it might be a little different um, than yours in some ways, uh, is that there was this visceral sense of harm is going down right now, right now, right now. You know, for instance, um, people who witnessed George Floyd being slowly killed and who were in the vicinity had to face this very issue. Urgent. What do you do? And we have been living with needing to grapple with the various understandings, eyes and hands, of that moment ever since. And it connects to the hospice room and it connects to right now. So yeah, we'll continue to work with teachings around, you know, what is ego and how do we penetrate it? What is the Dharma eye and so on? But as they say, the rubber hits the road with what are you gonna do? Now, and I need to apologize because um, I think that I still am in the midst of complicated grieving. And uh, I think I spoke longer than I intended to because I also needed to pause and keep coming back to the body and the grief that's moving through. So um, I'm sorry that we, we don't have time for more questions, but I'm happy to continue with um, folks in the courtyard, and if anyone online had a question, um, maybe uh, send me an email. Thank you all.